0: This year, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. Pair your impressive skills with our advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping Await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com/deals. That's Alienware.com/deals. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music. Now, as we close out Black History Month, I thought we'd share an encore presentation of an episode about the life and music of the great Nina Simone. Her brother Sam Wayman joined me to share some really intimate stories about her upbringing, her career, and a whole lot more. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, but in the meantime, enjoy. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Nina Simone is among the new class of artists who's going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and thought it would be a good time to devote an episode to her life in music. Her brother, Sam Wayman, is going to be joining us to talk about what it was like to live with her and work with her. And in the meantime, we have in the studio David Brown, Rolling Stone writer, who has an article coming out about the sort of ongoing revival of Nina Simone that's sort of been going on, as we were saying before the show, for at least 30 years and is probably never going to stop because she's... You know, she was a genius. She was an artist who was basically a genre unto herself because she incorporated so many genres and created something that is so unique. And it's interesting that she's being inducted into the rock and roll of fame because she certainly belongs there. But it's interesting that it took this long for people to think of her that way. What do you think's going on there, David? Well, I think, like you say, I think the revival of her, uh, of interest in
1: her music has been going on for like a good I feel like 30 years, you know, <laughs> about 30 years ago, a song of hers was used in a, in a commercial and that sort of got things rolling in the nineties. We had her songs in uh, a lot of movies like the big Lebowski and uh, probably nobody other than Bridget Fonda. And I remember this, but point of no return that wow. action movie that had like eight or 10 Nina Simone songs in it and Jeff Buckley recorded uh, Lilac lot like wine. So it's just been kind of building and, and, and I think it's, it's, Kind of kicked in in the last couple of years, really interesting. And her songs have found a whole new um, palette, a uh, new landscape in, in hip hop. They've been uh, that's uh, right. Kanye and, and Lil Wayne, and so many people have, have sampled her songs and made them seem
0: completely relevant, which they kind of are. They're sort of timeless songs. Jay Z on the story of OJ right? is a very, very prominent sample right there. In fact, let's Absolutely. hear that right now. And we can hear a bit of Four Women, which was the song that Jay-Z sampled.
2: My skin is black.
0: But in what sense was Nina Simone rock and roll to you, David? Many ways uh, she was rock and roll. I mean, I
1: think... In, in the most sort of um, obvious kind of way, I think her attitude was very she was uh uncompromising, feisty, you know, didn't take any crap from anybody. Regal. Uh, regal, um just, you know, laid down the law. She was sort of, you know, it's cliche to say that someone is like punk rock. But but she really was in that in that genre, especially given uh the times that she was starting out and making music late fifties into the sixties. She was not docile. You know, she, she had a vision for herself and her music and it just evolved more and more over time. So she really, she was like, you know, a, a, a pretty rebellious person basically.
0: <laughs> yeah. Anyone who could be a black woman in the early sixties and record a song called Mississippi Goddamn in the wake of the church bombings and, and Megar Evers' murder. I mean, that person belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and, and we should uh, hear a little bit of that song, Mississippi Goddamn.
3: Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest, and everybody knows.
0: It's almost a bit trivializing to talk about her in the context of rock and roll because, like I said, she was uh, you know, a genre unto herself and, and included so many genres of, of music in her work and it's almost trivia, but you look at her intersection with rock and roll. I mean, her version of, I put a spell on you. It's one of her most famous songs. That's obviously a, you know, rock and roll classic that she kind of took onto herself. I've seen a lot of people who don't even know that it's a screaming Jay Hawkins song. I think it's, a, it's a Nina Simone song and that says it all. And then again, this falls in the category of trivia, but I mean, you know, John Lennon said that he took a little bit of the way she says, I love you, I love you, love you in that song and put it into the bridge of Michelle. So there's that intersection. You know, the, the song Don't Let Me, Me Be Misunderstood, a lot of people don't seem to know that a year before the Animals recorded it, she recorded it. And in fact, it was written specifically for her with her in mind and her version actually has that famous riff that's in the Animals version, which, by the way, in just, a, again, this falls in the category of trivia, but, I mean, it, the song Badlands by Bruce Springsteen, he said that he based his riff on the Animals riff, which in turn was based on the Nina Simone riff. So you're talking about someone who was, you know, whether people realize it or not, was among many, many other things deeply embedded into sort of even the, the, the standard rock canon. I mean, David Bowie recorded Wild is the Wind because... Nina Simone had happened to meet him and they made a huge impression upon each other he told in Alan Light's book about Nina there's a a great bit where it was the early 70s and Nina was having one of her hard times and David Bowie called her at three in the morning and I just apparently just knew she was down and said you know you're not crazy don't ever let them think that you're crazy there aren't many of us out there and then he recorded Wild as the Wind so there's a A lot of connections there. Let's hear Nina's version of Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, the original version. And now let's hear the Animals version, which is strikingly similar. and of course uh, a couple years ago there was an oscar nominated and and very excellent documentary what happened miss simone and i think that was a a lot of younger people's introduction to nina john legend quoted her uh, on stage accepting uh, i think an oscar lana del rey asked for a special screening
1: of it and beyonce told the uh director that she you know really loved the movie too so yeah i think that that movie combined with some of the recent uh appearance you know sampling of her work in hip-hop records has suddenly you know taken nina simone you know out in a bigger way than she was before
0: what else did you learn kind of in your story that that's coming out about the way her influence is out there i think i think you spoke to rihanna giddens who had some interesting things to say about her right i think
1: I think in the context of our times, uh, especially in the Black Lives Matter movement, I think she's become, Anita has become an even more inspiring figure because she was, uh, you know, her, her music increasingly reflected the times, like you mentioned Mississippi Goddamn and other kinds of, uh, young, gifted, young, gifted and black, yeah. and and songs that she recorded and wrote later on in her career, and and the whole you know dignity with which she held herself, and 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 associated and knew Martin Luther King Jr. and and Langston Hughes and so many important figures. They, they, I think you can look at her now as as a really kind of newly symbolic figure in that world. And I think people like like Rand Giddens told me that, you know, she looks at what Nina Simone does, and she said, you know, as as a person of color, I have no excuse anymore for not you know Pursuing my dreams and doing what I want to do and think she's Nina's kind of
0: newly inspired a whole generation of people Her whole story is incredibly inspiring and and sometimes harrowing, you know to to start out as you know an an actual Prodigy slash genius who could play anything she heard on the piano at age three or four to the extent that in the racist south You know these white women kind of uh, took her under their wing She had this piano teacher this white woman who was like a second mother to her and taught her the entire classical canon. She went to Juilliard, and then the idea that she didn't even think of herself as a singer because she had been rejected by another mu- a music school, which she was convinced, you know, perhaps quite rightly, that for, because of racism, she had to earn money. So she went and played at a bar on the boardwalk in Atlantic City, and the second night the guy said, if you don't sing, you're not going to have this job. And she just started singing. And in that bar at the piano, she invented her sound. And even her first album is really great and shows how she had brought this thing together. And it's interesting, like the one thing at reading biographies of her, she doesn't talk much about jazz. She was, you know, deeply inspired by classical music and by sort of the popper music that c- came and went around her. But she was seen as some sort of jazz artist even though she <laughs> and played with a lot of jazz people and had been backed by jazz musicians and played in concerts with right. other jazz artists but wasn't like a jazz person. It's very fascinating to me and I think this difficulty of categorizing her was there from the very beginning. People were just like, you know, her her appeal is odd and and, and beguiling but I'm not sure what this is and that, that was something she faced her whole life which in itself is kind of rock and roll. It was
1: and I think the, the yeah the journey that she took from those days over the following decade, you know, where she, you know, she started out when she had uh, "I Love You Porgy" and those early hits. You know, she was wearing dresses and wigs and 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 playing a piano. And the journey from there, over the next ten years, when you know she got rid of the wigs, she, she her whole her music became her whole look became more Afrocentric. She started writing and singing more. Uh, songs about her personal experiences and, and, and her music got sort of funkier later on. I mean, and she plugged into the protest song movement, recorded Dylan songs, for example.
0: When, and she was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she was deeply and quite understandably radicalized and energized by the civil rights movement and by the Mississippi church bombing. I mentioned just she wrote in her autobiography that it, it completely transformed her. In that moment, she saw the truth of being black in America and she, you know, she became quite radical. There's a performance where she's she's standing on stage and, and going, "Are you ready to smash white things to burn buildings? Are you ready? Are you ready to build black things?" I mean, she was not messing around, yeah. and it hurt her, it hurt her career.
1: And, and it also hurt that she she would also get on stage sometimes and 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 not perform until she was paid. <laughs> you know, she was she was a complicated, difficult person. On top of it, you know, and if you no throw all that together that it was, uh, she she was a, a unique figure in pop music in that way. And
0: we are about to talk to Sam Wayman, brother of the late, great Nina Simone, who's about to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Sam's going to share some thoughts and memories. Sam, are you with us? Indeed I am. Hello, Brian. So you've had quite a, a career in your own right as an as a actor and, and a musician and an activist, including you wrote a, a great song for the Philadelphia soundtrack as among your many accomplishments. Yep. And at at the same time, and you worked with Nina and obviously grew up with her. You're the youngest of, of, of the family, correct?
4: Yes, I'm the last one on the totem pole. <laughs> Out of eight brothers and sisters, I'm the last born.
0: How many years are between you and Nina?
4: About five.
0: What are some of your earliest uh, memories of her, of your big sister?
4: Childhood was different because, well, she and I both, took lessons from the same music teacher. We both were playing the piano when we were three years old, and she took a lesson from a lady by the name of Mrs. Maganova. She was German, and so, um, so did I. She and I did not kind of grow up together, so to speak, well, because there were other sisters, and then I had my mother, who was very religious, so there was a whole distance between us
1: in that regard. Today, hip-hop dominates pop culture, but it wasn't always like that. And to tell the story of how that changed, I want to take you back to a very special year in rap. 88, it was too much good music. The world was on fire. fire. Yeah, I'm Will Smith. This is Class of 88, my new podcast about the moments, albums and artists that inspired a sonic revolution and secured 1988 as one of hip hop's most important years. We'll talk to the people who were there. And most of all, we'll bring you some amazing stories. You know what my biggest memory from that tour is? It was your birthday.
2: Yes, and you brought me the shot Life-size, <laughs> Hardboard cutout.
1: This is Class of 88,
0: the story of a year that changed hip-hop.
2: Follow Class of 88 on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I don't know anyone who isn't constantly running low on time. You've got to juggle work and the rest of life. Sometimes you just need groceries or drinks or whatever else, and there's zero time to head out and go shopping. There's one way around that, and that's Dash Pass from DoorDash. I'm definitely a DoorDash customer, and there's always something a little magical about your groceries popping up at your door. And when you want more from delivery, you can get it with Dash Pass by DoorDash. With Dash Pass, You get $0 delivery fees and lower service fees on eligible orders, which makes it incredibly easy to save on restaurants, groceries, retail items, and all your local favorites that deliver on DoorDash. And get this, DashPass pays for itself in only two orders on average, so it's worth it right away. And when you sign up, you get special access to exclusive promotions and member-only menu items, all for only $9.99 a month. Get more from delivery for less. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. Use code MUSICNOW24 and get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and more. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. That's 50% off up to a $10 value. When you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass with code MUSICNOW24. Again, MUSICNOW24. Subject to change, terms apply. Do you remember her, you know, because she talked about practicing and practicing for hours and hours a day, which was kind of isolating from other kids. Do you remember that at all?
3: Yeah,
4: we both had to do that. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we used to practice. I used to practice so much that my hands would be beating on the keyboard, you know. Um, and thank goodness that our mother made us do that. Anyone who has any experience with learning how to play an instrument knows what I'm talking about. You know, if you don't stick to it, you'll never be good at it. And to be good at it, you're going to have to work at it. And to work at it, it may be tough and hard. But the end result is that you'd be glad you did. And if you had a mother that made sure that you did that and my mother played piano. Um what you should know, Brian, is that every I had a, I had a family where everyone in the family played the piano. All eight of us. And including my mom and dad played. My mom my dad was a hunky punk piano player. Wow. And and my mom was a, a broad bill lady. who converted to become an ordained minister.
0: Did you guys have to fight over the piano when it was practice time?
4: Oh, come on. You know we did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what happened was Sam, that was me called, they called me Little Sammy, which I don't like, but Mm. Little Sam, when he was up north in Philadelphia, me was traveling around, they would always say, well, Sam coming down, because I always had a style. I played kind of R&D, funky kind of music. Mm. and they liked that. You know, my family liked that, but when I played gospel music, because I was also a church-going person, and I played Hammond organ, and I played in the church all the time, they liked the way I played. I had a certain style, and I didn't know why they were so excited about it, but we wouldn't fight over it, but it would be like, okay, let's sound play, let's sound play. And that was <laughs> that was a lot, and when Nina would come home, they would say, let Nina play, And because Nina liked to play also.
3: Mm.
4: She didn't, she didn't get a chance to play in many churches, per se, but she loved gospel music and she loved spiritual music because she was spiritual.
0: Now, obviously, you're know you you're quite talented in your own right. What was your assessment as a little kid of her talent when you saw her playing? And I'm talking about when she was you know, 11, 12, 13 years old, 14 years oh, old.
4: I was in awe of her talent to be able to play like that at such a young age, and for her to be my sister was was really extraordinary. I, I knew a lot of talented people, but it was fun being around my sister like that because she made fun of herself a lot. She didn't take herself that seriously when she, when everybody else was around from the family. Um, she loved me because she and I connected to our style of praying together. We had fun praying at the piano together.
0: One thing that people were interested to learn about her is that she didn't really sing until she sort of, uh, you know, got her gig in, in Atlantic City, and, and then was kind of yeah. almost forced to. Do you remember her? Which is so strange because she's, you know, she's one of the most famous singers who ever lived. Do you remember her singing at all before that, even casually? Well,
4: she did uh, You know, all of us sang a little bit, um, but we everybody sang. You know, there were the Wayman sisters. Right, Doctor Lucille and, and Rachel and uh, Doctor Lucille and so yes, she's sang. but she never thought that that would be a re- prerequisite or a requirement down at that club in Atlantic City. No, she was completely shocked by that.
0: Do you remember her her disappointment when her classical training was cut short and she was she was not admitted into that next music school? Was Was that something you were were you in touch with her at that at that particular point?
4: Well, I was around. It was upsetting, as you all know. I mean, the world knows how upsetting she was, how upset she was at that rejection. It really bothered her, too, because of the reasons why she felt it was because of racism and bigotry. Uh, if you know anything about us and people of color, you know that was a very hard pill for her to swallow. Yeah. She did not, it, it was not easy for her. And, and, and it, it really lasted, it stayed with her for a long time. You know, he of her. For, we her
0: for years and years and years and years. She always, I guess, eventually it, it slipped away a little bit. But what she wanted to be, as everyone knows, was was a classical pianist, a, a concert pianist. And even when she recorded her first album, which uh, L- Little Girl Blue, which uh, yes. you know, I would recommend everyone check out because you know it's an extraordinarily accomplished and fully formed first yes. album. And this is the sound she had essentially started to develop entertaining in, in this club where she became a sensation. but even then she thought she was just earning money so she could go back to school and, and study classical piano. so did you think that she was going to stick with this kind of show business thing, or did you think she might go at that point, or did you th- did you believe that she might actually just go back to classical?
4: No, I mean, I knew she was in it she would she was in it for the long haul it was um it was a calling for her. I mean that that was not something that she did haphazardly. It's like what our mother would say to us. We were taught that God that God gave us this gift, and if you don't use it, you will lose it. So mm. don't abuse it. Those were her, <laughs> my mom's three favorite words. That she drilled inside of us, and we stuck to it. I mean, we, we really believed what our mother said, and, and, and I think the proof of the pudding is in the fact that we are talking about her. You know, that was... Uh, she wasn't going to let it go. She couldn't. She, I think you might have read somewhere um, where Nina said she thought it was either a blessing or a curse mm. to have this kind of talent, and uh, that, that therein lies the paradox of, 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 the, of the talent and the pressure that it takes... To live on that level, interesting that you say something about Little Girl Blue because that's part of the story that I'm going to tell when I receive the award. I have a story to tell about Little Girl Blue, so I don't know if I should tell it over the radio or wait till I tell it then. <laughs>
0: it's, well, it's all it's all going to come out at about the same time. So if you want to if you want to give a little preview, that that would be okay.
4: Okay, <laughs> okay all right. No, well, uh, one of the things that Nina said to me said to me because she and I would be. Uh, living, we, we lived together in, in Hollywood, and we were on top of the roof sunning because she loved the sun,
3: hmm.
4: and she we were laying in the sun, and she said, I said to her, don't you get tired of being, or do you get tired of being Nina Simone all the time and not Eunice Wayman? And she said, yes, but that, that comes with this curse that I have at the same time She said, "Yes, but Sam, there's something that the world doesn't know about me." And I said, "Okay, what is that?" And she would say, "Well, brother, I'm really just a little girl inside. Mm. Nobody knows how I am because I'm just a little girl blue." Wow. That is why she sings, "Little Girl Blue." Wow. She said, and so she said, "I never knew how to." play basketball. I never knew how to jump rope, play jacks, or anything. So, what I did, I went out and bought a basketball. <laughs> I taught her how to play, how to shoot basketball in hoops up on the roof of this building in in, in L.A. Then I bought some jacks. <laughs> we played jacks. We jumped rope. Um, what else did we do? We threw catch ball. We did all those things, and she loved it. She never had a chance to do that sort of thing. Yeah, she and must, I was so happy. Yeah. I was so happy because it made her happy and then she felt like a little girl and she was always and, and when you touch on that little girl inside her soul she was just radiated. she would just have fun that was the neatest moment that i knew
0: we should hear uh, her version of uh, little girl blue the rogers and hearts on the title track of her first album sit there
3: count your little fingers unhappy little girl blue Yeah, I mean, I think it's a
4: great story, don't you think?
0: Oh yeah, and it's, you know, it it's interesting because my understanding is that she she was a Michael Jackson fan, and that's yes. and my, Michael had the same experience. You know, he didn't uh, because he was so busy training in music, he never had a childhood, and it's it's a very similar thing. A,
4: yes, and a lot of a lot of people are not like that. A lot of us, and, and and people don't know, that because once you become entangled in the show business, you know, in the web of show business, you get you get lost. Part of you gets, you know, misplaced, and you want to tag, you want to touch base with that place of where you have good memories and so forth, and you can get lost then. And so I understand it.
0: I do. Sam, what do you think? And what do you think Nina would have thought? of being inducted specifically into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, because I don't think she ever saw herself as a rock and roll artist per se. So well, what do you think she would have made of that, and what do you make of that?
4: Well, here's what Nina would say. <laughs> she would say, thank you, I appreciate it. But she would look at me and say, damn, Sam, what took him so long? <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs>
4: and I find that funny because, you know, it's not so much as just the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, she 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 felt neglected. Yeah. And she and she let the world know about it. I mean that's so for her to be inducted in the rock and roll hall of fame gives her a permanent place for her for her history. That's her legacy. And that's that's why I'm here. That's what the Raymond family family's here. That's what she wanted. And she's being recognized for that. Of course she's gonna say I am I'm happy that you are appreciating our music. Okay, she she, she was angry that, uh, for example, black artists were not black female artists were not getting paid the kind of royalties that white women white artists were getting paid. Yeah, she she vocalized that. I mean, that was not a secret. She was upset that they didn't know what to do with her. They try to use her and mold her, um, and they did you know because she and I both were on RCA and. Uh, anybody who's been in the record business knows how the um, they want to pigeonhole you and form you and make you a certain way. And they didn't know what to do with her, but she hated the fact that, that they didn't know what to do with her. So she said, the hell with it. I'm going to be myself and be who I am no matter what. But she didn't like the fact that she was selling records and she didn't feel like she saw enough money from the result of all that hard work.
0: What about the the rock and roll part? Like, did she have? I can't. I can't imagine that's how she saw herself. But, but do you remember a, any any talk of of rock and roll itself or how she might feel about that part?
4: Yeah, yeah, she loved rock and roll. We talked about Bo Diddley a lot. <laughs> yeah, she loved Bo Diddley. You know, uh, James Brown. Of course, James Brown was not to really rock and roll, but you no, know, she loved rock and roll music. Scream-
0: screaming Jay Hawkins, obviously, as we were saying earlier. I mean. Yeah.
4: Yeah. yeah, I mean, come on, everybody knows about Steve. Yes, so she was not that removed from what you consider rock and roll. No, not, no. she loved all kinds of music. Um, the fact that when we played for the King of Morocco and we were walking to the palace and we heard this music as we were walking, this is in, in uh, back in the 70s, and we we, played, we were a special envoy who played for the king of Morocco and the president of France. We just finished praying for Francois Mitterrand But we had to go to Morocco. And then we walked into this the King's palace and we heard all this music. And, you know, and we walked through the hall of mirrors. And we kept hearing uh, Aretha Franklin music blasting and Ray Charles and Michael Jackson. Hmm. And we walked into this room and there were all the American artists lined up against the wall on the floor leaning up against the wall, and they were dancing like americans i said this is this is crazy <laughs> do you believe do you believe this and and it was it was just as no, well just business as usual <laughs> yeah. uh so wow. i mean things like things like that kind of caught our attention she said turn there's michael Jackson, there's a my goodness there's uh betty White. so forth." i said whoa uh It it was strange, but we thought it was kind of cute because they, we know that they love American music.
1: Uh, hey Sam, it's David Brown. We were talking yeah. earlier about uh, one of the reasons that there's been so uh, such a renewed interest in your sister and her work, uh, especially in the times yeah. that we're in. And they look back on the way that she reflected the times that she was in, in the civil rights movement, okay. and, and how she yeah. became more radicalized in a way, you know, as the '60s yeah. went on. And I imagine you you had a front row seat in a way to seeing that, and uh, and, and uh, with that, Martin Luther uh, King. I love and, it. Yeah, what, what, what did you witness of the way that she became more kind of socially aware as the
4: that well, 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 it, it wasn't, uh, okay, <laughs> this is about a movement. Mm. And I, I can't make the distinguish, it's hard for me to make a distinguishing difference between me and Simone being in the, in the movement and all of us being in the movement. Because I still have scars from the goon squads and the German Shepherd dogs and the water hoses and the
3: mm. tanks
4: and stuff that all of us marched
3: for. Yeah
4: equal right and justice and so forth so we all stood hand in hand with that that was our middle name because freedom is our name you Mm. know and that's what we stood for so if you want to know how did my sister react to the civil rights movement is that what you're asking because
0: i guess the question uh, is what what kind of conversations do you remember having with her at the time because she really did you know she found a, a new sense of purpose and you know did a lot of brave things uh, through those years and, and risked her career and, and risked her safety. And So what what do you remember her her it saying to you about all this?
4: It wasn't her. Yeah. It, it, of course it did. It upset her. I mean, when they banned, they didn't play Mississippi Goddamn, because as you, I'm sure you all know, you did the research, you know that they banned Mississippi Goddamn for the language for yes. years. And then suddenly it became a hit record. I mean we played it at the Fort Ditch, I think it was Fort Ditch is where we played it the first time. And the place went they went ballistics over it. Wow. Um they thought it was great, great, but it was the truth, you know, you can't bury the truth. And truth murders lies, you know. Truth is a killer, and truth kills lies. And so it was it was incumbent of her she had to she had no choice. We as artists, she as artists, she had to write something because that was her calling. I mean, it, 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 it was a piece of her that was being killed and raped, a part of her soul. Oh. And she knew how to express
3: it.
0: It was interesting to see, you know, obviously Andrew, her her, her then husband and manager, how he, you know, he, all he wanted was showbiz success, and for him, th- this was all kind of a distraction. It's like go back to trying to be on the charts, forget the civil rights stuff. How did all that play out uh, from what you saw?
4: Oh, uh, that was hard, my man. That was difficult. That was not. That was not kosher. That was not cool <laughs> because it presented, it presented uh, a rift between them. Uh, he was not an artist. And I'm not going to put him down. I'm just going to say he he did his job. He was a former detective, so he had a certain way of looking at things. And she, on the other hand, was emotional, and that presented a lot of tension in their the relationship. I mean, when you're used to having the pack of Hall sell out halls because of your wonderful melodic music and your love songs and all of that, then suddenly you're switching. Uh, you know, that would make any man who has a business acumen a little bit upset because now he's losing dollars. He's got to pay the bills. How many people are going to come and watch you or listen to you sing about protest and racism, et cetera? Well, you know, did not, we do not have the time to try to figure out what the public is going to, how the public is going to react yeah. to something that you are writing about that you cannot help but write about. You have to throw it out there and see what happens That's your job
0: Yeah, well she so. was playing on a higher field than show business There's no doubt about it I mean Absolutely th- th- So I think it was three days after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. You guys played in Long Island And mm-hmm. and you, you you performed that song Why the King of Love is Dead mm-hmm. That I think your bass player wrote And and let's, let's hear a little bit of that And then I'm going to ask you about your memories of that day he
3: was dreaming of the day peace would come to earth to stay and he spread this message all across the land.
0: Turn the other cheek, he'd bleed. What are your memories of of that of that day?
4: Oh, that was a that was a tearjerker day. That was a day when it was like America was born again because it put it, it made it was such a moving song. I mean, everybody was in tears. It it was great. We didn't care how everybody felt about it. I was playing the Hammond B three, what they called the Beast. Huh. And we didn't practice that song. We did a spare of the moment. When you have a goal and you and you know your talent, he wrote that song and we learned it on the plane. And we learned it on the plane and we landed it on, on the bus. And then we sat down and played it. <laughs> wow! So there was no there was no thing like okay, let's go have a two hour rehearsal.
3: No, <laughs>
4: you play the song one time. You know, I mean, we were good. You know, we're good. You, you play it. We understand that. And you, if you listen. If musicians listen to how the chords go and with the mood from changes to changes, you can pretty much almost estimate where it's, estimate where it's going to go. But you have to listen, and we knew where it was going to go. Of course, we played it several times, but uh, but that's all
0: we needed to play. Was Nina tough on on her musicians? Was it Was it challenging to be? Because I imagine her standards were were hard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and and she and she had her mood. So what was that like? That must have been something. <laughs>
4: And you know the reason I'm laughing? I'm laughing because he was hell. <laughs> well, you, know, <laughs> you know James Brown, like right? you know you know, I love James Brown because he didn't stand for you to be five minutes late. If you mm. were two minutes late, you know, you're gonna get docked to your pay. Yeah.
3: You know? and,
4: and and he didn't care how good you were. If you were two minutes late, the only way that he would accept your being late was if there was like and I mean I don't mean to dis but if you had death in the family or something like that, you know. Sure. But, but Nina was Nina was like, um, Nina was as if, if you say that you are a guitarist, then you better be able to play like a guitarist, Hmm. if you're going to play with Nina Simone. That is not to say that if you are if you're not playing with me and Simone that you're not a
0: good guitarist. No, but she. So how yeah, how would that, how would that play out? She would. What what did you see? I mean, would she would she be firing musicians, yelling at musicians, docking musicians? What did you see? Well, no, she wouldn't. She didn't dock you. She would just
4: tell you, "What the hell are you playing?" <laughs> <laughs> You know, did you learn the song? Can't you hear? You, would say, you can't hear me? <laughs> <laughs> Things of that nature, you know, I was right there with the so. It was not, uh, most of the music, well, I, I, I brought relief. I'm going to, let me just tell you what, what role I played. I brought relief to the musicians in the band because the first thing they said was, we're so glad you are in the band mm. because that took some of the weight off of us. Nina was very, um, she, would, she was lonely on the road. So she had a lot of anxieties and she didn't trust many people.
3: Yeah. When
4: it came to her standard of music, you don't mess with her music. You either it or you don't. And she had high standards, yes. But if you want to call yourself a musician, then you should appreciate those standards. And that, that's the way it was.
0: And I imagine you were you were always able to talk to her. You were family, and that's one of the reasons why the musicians were so happy you were there.
4: Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, there weren't too many people that could handle her, <laughs> and uh, I I could.
0: Her later years got so so complex. She left. She left the United States. She had her ups and downs. Yep. She found a medication that I, I guess helped her. But it, yes. it was it it was it was ups and downs. I mean, how do you see all that? You know, her, her troubles. what how does you see that in, in your mind as a brother?
4: Well, it bothered me because she was troubled, and I, I did not like the fact that she was. Uh, she used to drink a lot, and she took pills. And One of the things was that I had very high standards, and she, whenever I called her Eunice, it was as if Daddy had spoken, and It would be like, go to your room, (laughs) sort of thing. And I wouldn't call her, I wouldn't call her, I mean, I'd call her Eunice. No one else would call her Eunice. No one would dare call her Eunice but me. And I protected my sister because she was my sister. Yeah. One of the things I didn't want her to do was drink. So she and I would have fights over that. Uh, I remember Ronnie Scott in London, um, she attacked me with a, a bottle of crystal Yikes. Champagne. One of her favorites. Uh, one of the things is I never, never hit a woman ever. I was taught that. And but she came at me with this bottle and I had to slap her, to slap, I had to slap it out of her hand. Right. And that's the only way that I would keep from having a brain crushing or brain. And I really didn't like that. It shocked her when I did that. It, it, it. It shocked her because she had not seen that side of me. Mm. And it was at Ronnie Scott's. I, I told her, I said, okay, no more drinking. Now, I, I got to tell you this. you did everything possible to hide her bottles of liquor from me. So one day, I happened. First of all, I used to, um, she she used to love the. She said, Sam, come and look at me see how I look approve how I dress or something et <laughs> Um she knew that I loved she knew I loved her in high heels. i <laughs> um, she, she I'm telling you personal side now, I love her in her high heels. She looked very good. She had beautiful feet and she knew that. But she would buy these red heels or black heels and she would say, How do we look call my brother and have him look at my look at, zip up my dress or something. A- approve of me. And I walked in one day and she had, she forgot, I think, that she had only had her slip on or something. She had had made a gun, she had a, like a gun holster made <laughs> for the inside of her, of her thigh. Oh, my. To <laughs> put a flask in so that I wouldn't find it. <laughs> I mean, that, that may not be so funny to some people. Some people say, well, that's really sad, you know. But she did that because she had. She was addicted, and she? But I saw that, and she saw that I saw that, and I just stood there and looked at her. And I said, Eunice, no. Well, it was as if, again, Daddy had spoken. I didn't say it as calmly as I'm saying it now. Yeah. But um, she felt awful. Um, I told her, to give it to me. You know, she the fact that she had it on her dress, she knew that I would not find it. But since I did find it, She couldn't pretend anymore, and I had just stumbled upon a little girl who had misbehaved by putting her hand in the cookie jar, so to speak. Um. Uh, I was very strict about that, you know, Um, but she used to drink Grand Maillet, and uh, she would take some pills, grandma, yeah, is very like a 200 proof of something. It's over nuts. I had to put her in the hospital several times mm. because, of, because of it. I want you guys to know that I'm telling things that I had not told before. I mean, I mean, at this point, I suppose it doesn't really matter. It's all good information. I I didn't worship my sister. I protected my sister.
0: Yeah, and that's a better thing to I, do.
4: And yeah, and you, gotta, you have to understand that and there were, she had a little, she and I had a little thing that she would say, uh, for example, a lot of men wanted to hit on her all the time. And, and so she, she loved men and she would say to these men who would come and visit her or try to write notes to her. The first thing she would say is, have you met my brother?
3: Huh.
4: Did my brother approve of you? She would say. And they would say, no. She so, said, well, I can't go out with you until my brother meets you. And if he says I can go out with you, then I can go out with you until they get out of my face. <laughs> That's the way she was. That's cool. And, and, and everybody knows. So if I'm on the second floor in my hotel suite, they would come knocking on my door. Sam, your sister want to see you. Or some stranger will come knocking on the door. Or my bodyguard will bring somebody up and say, uh, Mr. William, there's somebody here that wants to see you. And the stranger would be standing at my door and I would say, yeah, okay, what do you want? Well, my sister... Uh, your sister sent me down here to meet you and to see if you would approve of me because I would like to take her out. That went on all the time.
0: <laughs> yeah, you were you were a good brother. It's, you know, as as we conclude here, I mean, like you said, I mean, she would have been very gratified to see the way that people are, are, are truly appreciating her as a legend right now, it seems like, huh?
4: Oh, she would. She would. I mean, when she wrote that song, A Stupid Dog... Mm-hmm. She wrote that she wrote that song for the record companies. She wrote that song for everybody who stole money from her or oh, was <laughs> gonna withhold money. Mm-hmm. That's why she wrote it called That Stupid Dog, deliberately for the Record Companies. But she would she would be thrilled at the recognition. Um and she of course she would say, Well I guess if she were could look down at her and stuff like she would say, Oh, I had to die for this before it happens but, <laughs> but that's the way it happens with legacies and history. Yeah. But she would be, she would find it very, very exciting. I know she would.
0: It is. And uh, I hope you have a great night at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's going to be quite a night. And Sam Wayman, thank you so much for joining us. That was an incredible conversation. Uh, I really appreciate it. And this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. I was in the studio with David Brown. We'll be back next week here at SiriusXM's Volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Wherever you get your podcast, maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
2: Movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's What Women Binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. We have Lauren Bosworth with us. Yay! The Hills. So what is like your number one question from fans? The primary question I still get asked was, what, is it real? (laughs) (laughs) In 2024, to me, is a surprising question to get because I feel like everybody has been through the reality TV gauntlet at this point. What Women Binge, wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring.